please be advised. All music tracks used in this production are sole property of Kelson Communications and are original compositions. Also, please be advised that the sound bite you'll hear from Dr. Richard Stone, I was granted permission to use from administrative personnel at the VA in Washington. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate. Coming up will be a Kelson on the Air social work podcast special series entitled Social Workers Confronting COVID-19 with Compassion, Courage, and Character. Over the next several weeks, you will hear from social workers from all over the country share their stories and their experiences battling and dealing with this devastating pandemic. It is my greatest wish that these stories will garner a new level of appreciation for the vitally important role that social workers play in confronting the challenges, heartbreak, and tragedies this coronavirus is wreaking on all of us. Social workers are there for everyone right now as they are always. To open up this series, please hear this profound message from Dr. Richard Stone, executive in charge of the Veterans Health Administration in Washington, D.C. Following that, you'll hear Ms. Nzinga Gaines, MSW. Please listen, learn, and be inspired. Thank you for tuning in. Today, I want to talk to you about our social work community. You know, social workers are always there. They're always part of our team, and they're always interacting with our patients for various specific needs. But now with social isolation, uh, people uh, people have need social workers for the first time. And our social workers, for the most part, have worked face-to-face with our patients and their families. Now they can't do that. It's very difficult work and it's unprecedented the level of support we've gotten from our social works community. I want you to think about how much financial instability has uh, has been induced during all of this shutdown. Uh, People are worried about money, people are worried about their jobs, people are worried about each other, and it's our social workers who are the glue that holds this together. And in any really good healthcare system, the social workers are out in front trying to make sure families are well taken care of and all of the unique needs that are not met by our medical professionals are really handled by the social work community. So today I'd like you to take a minute and just thank your social workers that are part of your team and recognize how much extraordinary work they've been able to accomplish throughout this pandemic. Thank you. To everyone tuning in, welcome. This is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate. You're listening to the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast, the program that promotes, celebrates, uplifts, and highlights the social work profession. This podcast aims to educate the general public through the vital contributions professional social workers make in every aspect of society every day. Nzinga Gaines was born and raised in Washington, D.C. Ms. Gaines is a mental health professional and substance abuse counselor. She has served marginalized, disenfranchised youth, children, and families for over 28 years. Her posts of service include child, adolescent, and adult, individual, group, and family therapy, inpatient and outpatient substance abuse rehabilitation. She's worked in adolescent psychiatric hospitals, youth shelters, and juvenile detention centers. And she's also a medical social worker skilled in surgical and medical ICU and ER procedures. 
Her business, Nzinga Gaines MSW Consulting, provides mental health and academic consultation, training, workshops, which are locally, regionally, and nationally presented, specifically to address the deficit of mental health literacy and cultural competency within school systems, community agencies, and many religious and church organizations. Nzinga currently provides social and emotional support services as the family support social work specialist for three alternative charter high schools in Lee County, Florida. She created the Facebook page Mecca, which stands for Making Engaging Community Connections Accessible, which hosts weekday live episodes providing topics and resources specifically addressing the social emotional impact of COVID-19 on parents with children. It is my distinct pleasure to introduce to our listeners, Ms. Nzinga Gaines, MSW. Welcome to this special segment of the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast. My name is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate. And today's guest is Ms. Nzinga Gaines from Florida. So welcome to the show, Ms. Gaines. And if you could just take a few minutes to just give our listeners a little insight and background on yourself, it'd be greatly appreciated. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Nzinga Gaines. I have a, a business I've started called Nzinga Gaines MSW Consulting. It's um, mental health and academic consulting. So it's basically the, the same pieces of mental health that I've done as it relates to children and adolescents, but specifically addressing the academic piece. So that could be um, students and parents that may not necessarily understand their learning disability um, tips and ideas and suggestions on ways to process information um, in the school system. So if um, it's learning tips, if it's um, study habits, whatever the case may be with that, but then specifically um, as it relates to cultural competency and mental health literacy um, with the... um, the ways that a lot of students are being labeled and categorized inappropriately or improperly um, because their behaviors may look like a certain diagnosis when it can actually be something else. So that's basically um, what I try to target and focus on inside my consulting. Um, And I've been at MSW for 28 years. All right. Thank you so much for that. And uh, in your experience, obviously having a lot of experience working with children, what are you seeing and, and how are you helping to uh, address issues that are arising from children as we've been dealing with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic? Okay, so the, the biggest piece that, that I see, and right now I'm, I'm functioning as a school social worker, so the biggest piece that I'm seeing is the transition from traditional school students that are going into the actual brick-and-mortar schools that are now uh, learning remotely and what that has, what the, the impact of that either as it relates to being home with their parents and they, they're normally not. So now the parent is in the role of a teacher or, you know, schoolmaster <laughs> um, <laughs> as it used to be back in the day. Um, and that just like that separation and not having that. Um, and then also as it relates to just the, the day-to-day, I, I think I, I was speaking with someone earlier about the different learning modalities and how just going from classroom to classroom sometimes provides that, that break or that stimulus, whatever the case may be. And when, when we have students and we're looking at the learning modalities and we're looking at personality temperament, aside from if there are IEPs or 504s or anything like that, that piece is missing and helping parents understand how to adjust, you know, as it relates to accommodations that the professionals were providing in the school system or just that the kids can't get out. <laughs> you know, exactly. a lot of times it's 
it's just that piece is it's that simple and that, you know, it's simple and at the same time, it's, it's very complicated to make sure that, you know, you're trying to communicate to your child slash student that, you know, we have to stay, you know, in this environment, we have to make sure that we're, we're healthy and safe to a young person that doesn't get it, you know, and it's not that they don't get it because they're limited or, or don't have the capacity, it's just that I just need to get out. Um, and that's been the biggest piece because I've noticed that students that may have already needed that, that break or, or had different types of issues that they had to deal with are now even more so. And then some students that, you know, weren't identified as having any kind of, you know, issue with, you know, being able to relate or, or anything like that are now becoming anxious and things like that. So that's really what my focus is. And then the, the other piece is the uncertainty. So you have, when do we get to go back to school? When do I get to go back out and play? When, you know, and there's yes. no real answer to give. And so trying to support parents with that, you know, is very difficult because normally, you know, when, if, if you're asking me to provide a service, then, you know, there's a, this is what we have, this is what's available, here's the information, you know, and I still have those pieces, but the uncertainty is, is just looming and that's kind of hard to navigate for for a lot of parents, especially for some of my students who are for um, non-traditional students. So we have, where I work, a lot of the students are 18, 19, 20, because it's an alternative charter high school. So yes. um, a lot of them are parents themselves. A lot of them, you know, are used to working and coming and going. Some of them are also, they also have jobs and they're, they're helping their parents support, you know, the, the household and, the impact of not being able to do that. And a lot of them now are experiencing the stress of family members being hospitalized and um, even some have expired. So now we have that piece and then they can't go if their family member has expired because of COVID-19, they can't even, if it's out of state, they can't even go to visit the family members. I know of one student who can't even, their family can't even have the funeral. Wow. Because of the situation, yeah. So, so it's a lot. It, it's, it's certainly a lot to deal with. And as a school social worker uh, in this environment, you know, obviously, you, you know, you have to play even a more integral and important role. How is it that you've been able to handle the issues that come up in a traditional sense um, where you could have a face to face with the student? How are you addressing that now that everything is being done via, you know, video chat and Google Google Classroom and, and Google Hangout? How do you address those issues now and, and try to assuage um, the fears of the child that, you know, this normal is their normal rather is all upset? How, how is that being dealt with now during this time? So for for me, I had prior to COVID-19, you know, I had the. 19, I had the, uh, the work cell. And I had three, I had three schools I'm responsible for. So, you know, that was, you know, the face to face and the moving around and the home visits and all that. And that I'm not doing. <laughs> right. Present. So I have not, like, I, I know that there are other social workers that have started doing zoom, using zoom to see their, to see their students. And there's another web something that they're using for that. I haven't begun that yet. But a lot of my students, they live and breathe text messaging. Mm. So what's happened is our company has decided that, you know, that we have to have certain amount of contact with students, which makes a lot of sense. But yes. um, so aside from the, the calls to the home to make sure the parents are, if they need anything in that in that regard or whatever, aside from phone calls, my students really text more than anything. And what's happened is 
because we had, I don't know if I mentioned this, but the schools that I work for, they have two sessions. So the first session or session A is traditionally, if we were going into the school, would be 7 a.m. to 12. And then the second session would be 1230 to 530. Mm-hmm. So our, our work day was before was um, 7 to 330. Now it's 730 to 4. Mm. Um, working remotely, but... Some of my some of my students I'm reaching at five five thirty six o'clock, and I only have a few that like to do FaceTime. But the rest of them, as long as they you know I'm reaching out and saying hey how are you doing, you know through text message. And I've never <laughs> prior to this you know that's not that was not at all what I would do. And, and only a few of them you know that my phone number my work work cell is on my business card, but mm-hmm. nobody ever called me because. I would see them in school. So being able to be available and flexible enough to be able to be present, as it were, via text during a time when I normally wouldn't be, but also managing so that I'm not like, as it were, on call, because I don't (laughs) I don't want to communicate that either Mm -hmm. if I'm I'm not. But, you know, it goes with knowing who my students are, knowing what kind of situations are, are taking place and then, you know, having that flexibility to, within reason, be available um, even if that means not doing that normal that normal time, but not too too much where I don't I don't have an off switch if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, one of the other things that has come up and it came out immediately after most of the uh, states in the country started shutting down and doing uh, stay at home is that many students who counted on two nutritious meals a day via being in the school environment. Now, all of a sudden, those meals were not available, which put an undue strain on the family members or the parents, rather, to uh, provide those additional meals. Have you experienced any of that? And if so, um, what have you and the district done to address that bit of food insecurity? Okay, we have experienced that in in a small margin. So for... The, the charter school that I work for, they it's owned by a company, but mm-hmm. we have to follow the, the requirements and, and such by the district. So each of the three schools that I work for have a pantry, and our pantry at school we have a, a food pantry on the on the premises. Actually, of correction, two of the three because they they tried it at one of them. One one of the three schools is a little bit more affluent than the other two. And they tried the food pantry, and it just no one ever used it. So they said, "Yeah, we we're not going to go that route." But anyway. Um, our food pantry at the other two schools, we receive our foods from two different food banks. And so, you know, we, we go through that process. But what ended up happening with COVID-19 is the, the school district, the public school district in this county had a grab and go. That's what it's actually called if we went to the website for mm-hmm. Lee County Schools here in Florida. They had the grab and go. And there was, I didn't have to, the students didn't have to say, oh, I go to the school. They had the different locations. They had the different times. And you can go through that to those different locations at their times and get two meals. You can get a breakfast and a lunch meal. And it, it could be the charter school. It could be anybody, right, to, to do that. So um, that was really nice that the, the Lee County School District did that. And as long as you came to that those different locations, it was there was no kind of identification. You just get your food. And then the other piece of that is one of our schools has someone at the building every Wednesday. Okay. And if any of our students need to go, initially it started off that it was a Wednesday. 
so that if there were any students that needed technology or assistance or anything like that, if they didn't have equipment and there was something we had at the school, they could do that. Otherwise, they would get their homework that they would traditionally be getting over the Internet. They would get a packet. So they would be considered offline. Oh, Initially, okay. it started like that. But then once they would go and they'd say, oh, you know, usually I would get X, Y, and Z from the pantry, then they could do that as well. So it's not like our pantry is open. Mm-hmm. But when they, if they do come on a Wednesday and they need something, they're more than welcome to do that. And then the other nice piece is that there are a couple of churches in the area that have decided to, they're aware of the breakfast and the lunch piece that people can get from the, count, the Lee County School District, but that, that dinner piece. And they said, well, we'll we'll take care of that piece. So there's a couple of churches that make like hot cooked meals mm-hmm. and they can either come to get it or the church members will deliver it as well as groceries. So that's been, that's been really nice how the community has rallied around that. piece. Wow. That's awesome. And and again, just to, uh, for our listeners, just tell our listeners what part of uh, Florida you are located in. Oh, sure. Lee County, Florida. So um, that's, Fort Myers, Florida, Cape Coral, I'm trying to think of everything that's in Lee County. There's many cities inside Lee County, but, Specifically, I address Fort Myers, Cape Coral. I have some students that are out of Lanita and Estero, but that's, you know, that's, that's Lee County. That's- Lee County, Fort Myers, and positioning that to another city that's well-known, where would that be positioned? What part of Florida, and, and can you give us a little idea of where it's located next to another big sure. city? Sure. Um, the, uh, Fort Myers, Florida is probably... Depending on where you are in Tampa, mm-hmm. two hours south, like of Tampa. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now one of the things that that grabbed my attention is, uh, you know, there was a a post on, uh, I believe it was Facebook, and uh, and I and, and I shared it and. And you saw it and you said you were going to share it, a love letter to social workers. And you mentioned that you had heard a lot of similar stories about what social workers were were going through, rather, uh, as the onset of COVID-19 got more and more prevalent. So could you share any stories um, that you've heard about some of the um, trials and, and challenges that social workers anywhere in the country or in Florida that you know of? Because that's really what uh, we want to bring to the attention of our listeners. Absolutely. So I will share a small story about the social workers in my company and then broader. Just as a side note, uh, we were not. The social workers in my company, the company that, that is said, that's responsible for the charter schools that I work for, and it's, it's that charter schools in Florida, Georgia, and North Carolina. So there's one school in Georgia, one school in North Carolina, and the rest of them are Florida. So that's, that's 10 total social workers for this company, for, for these charter schools. We were not considered essential workers. Wow. And yeah, we were not. And, and it was interesting because prior to for this company, several years ago, I actually worked for the Lee County School District. And why that's important is this. When the schools get their grade and they're looking at the academic achievements and attendance and things like that, they go into this idea of a bonus or this idea of compensation for different different levels of improvement or whatever. The social workers are not included in that. Hmm. When the Lee County public school system, the social workers, 85, 90% of what they do is attendance and truancy. Then you cannot teach a child if a child is not in the building. Mm-hmm. So social workers for the Lee County School District, public Lee County School District, we're going to the homes and doing home visits, truancy, the citations, all of that. 90% of that is that. And I loved doing my job as a school social worker. The, the downside was I felt like I was a truancy officer. 
So mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't get to do groups. And, you know, so I could do a group here and I could do a group there. But my main focus was attendance. So I had to do that before I could do the other pieces that I knew that, that many of the students, you know, really needed, you know, that, that connection with the student and with the family. And that being said, when it came time to do the vote on you know, who would be included in that, we could vote. But for us to receive any part of that bonus, we had to be voted into that piece. Wow. Even though, yes, even though the majority of what we did helped put the kids, you know, get them back into school. So that's one thing. With this, with this charter school, it was the exact same. And even if we are voted in, like I have three schools, so that meant that if a school decided that they wanted to include me in the into the bonus, I would receive one third of whatever portion would go to that school and one third, you know, so if one of the schools decided to include me, then it'd be a third of their bonus. It's just really crazy. Hmm. But the reason why I'm saying that is because once COVID-19 hit and the, the, the mandates started coming out to stay home and, and we began working remotely, it was somewhere in there that now I'm getting information saying that I'm an essential worker because now they want us to continue doing what we're doing. We want to make sure that mm-hmm. the students are, are participating. So, you know, who's going to be the ones that go into the home now? Who's going to be knocking on doors? And instead of it being providing services, because for the company where I work now, I have interns that help me. So a lot of the assessments they do, a lot of the outreach that they do, and I kind of manage it. And then I help them either start groups or contact different people or whatever. I don't have interns at the present uh, because the schools have decided there's, they were, I had five, three, their schools had decided they were near the end. And they said, you know what, we don't know how this thing is going to play out. And they only have four or five weeks left. Anyway, we're going to wrap this up. The other two were from a different university and their university put everything on pause because they didn't know how this was going to play out. But the student outreach still needs to be done. And so that's what I'm doing. And then they decided to send us all a letter saying that we were, in fact, essential staff. Oh, my goodness. And I was like, okay, how does that play out? And what's that going to mean at the bonus time? <laughs> mm. So that made things really interesting for us because it, it, it was kind of telling. And it was it was disconcerting. But on a, gro- a broader scheme, though, a lot of the social workers that I know, and I used to be a medical social worker, so I worked at a trauma center where... I was in charge of the medical ICU, the surgical ICU, and we all had a rotation in the ER. So these are frontliners, you know, it's, yes. it's, they're in, you know, they're in the medical, in the hospital where all this stuff is happening. And traditionally medical social workers are the ones that are helping with the discharge planning, yes. making sure that next of kin is notified if that's the case, just uh, trying to gather as much information toward the discharge as possible because if, you know, if you've ever been a medical social worker, you know, the discharge plan begins at admission. Yes. <laughs> so when they, when, okay, so who's going to get you? Do you need resources and services once you leave? And setting that up as much as possible prior to the person leaving. Now they're right next to the doctors and nurses as they always have been, but now in a, in a different capacity, because now we don't know what you're going to need. We're going to leave. We don't know how long you're going to stay. And now we have family that sit. And usually we're, we're really instrumental when the family comes to visit getting that information from the family. And now the family can't be as involved in the hospital because they're not considered an essential person to be there. So navigating that, the emotional piece, the communication piece, like explaining why you really can't come on the unit at this time, even though this is your loved one, like that's, you know, social workers, we get thrust right, you know, right into the middle of that. And then the other piece that I wanted to speak about as far as social workers being frontliners doing this, this COVID-19 and the whole essential worker piece is aside from the medical social workers and the frontliners on that end, we have the whole 
crisis piece because when you think about the mental health and you think about like the crisis units that come out, either their mobile crisis or um, the psych hospitals or the places that have that piece where they're intervening with someone that's having a breakdown or someone that's experiencing some kind of episode related to a crisis, that population or that group, those numbers are increasing because people don't know what they're going to do. They have this, you know, we have this sense of uncertainty. There's no real way to know. And now we have a president telling us to ingest and inject, you know, disinfectant. <laughs> what in the whole world are we going to do with that? And how many people out there are desperate enough to think that, you know what, that may not be so much of a bad idea. Mm. And then here we are. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you have, and I'm not trying to be, you know, funny or anything. It's just that when you think about, you know, you, you hear that or I hear that, I'm thinking that, please don't let anybody, please don't let do that. But then you, you, when people are desperate and people are not sure and mm-hmm. people, whatever the case may be, you know, they start grasping at different things. And I myself, you know, there are people in the community, my immediate community, either organizations because of organizations I belong to or whatever, that know that I'm a social worker and my phone is blowing. Mm-hmm. You know, people, I have friends that reached out and said, please, can you check on me every day because I'm just not doing well with it. Okay. So... I'm going to obviously I'm going to do that because that's my friend. And at, but at some point I have to say, you know what? You're not on the clock and you have to take care of your own mental health. Yes, not you to do. say that, right. Not to say that I'm not going to be there for my friend, but I have to take inventory and make sure that I'm rejuvenating the way I need to. But my point is we are hardly ever off the clock in a sense. Exactly. Because somebody knows that we're a social worker. Somebody knows what that means. And when people are in need, that's what we do. Yes. Yes. And I think you bring out a very interesting point because one of the biggest things that has been thrust into the uh, forefront as this pandemic rather has unfolded is the self-care piece for social workers. And just the mere fact that, you know, you hit on a lot of points and topics about what social workers do. And a lot of information I'm getting is about the social workers who are in those hospitals in those rooms, you know, being the bridge between person who may, you know, be on be on their last leg and the family members who can't get to see them. And a lot of people, again, don't realize that it's the social worker. Now, doctors and nurses do a great job and we, we commend them and, and we do applaud and salute them. But after they've done all that they can do and they leave that room nine times out of 10, it's a social worker that's left there to try to hold that whole scene together. And it does become very burdensome because they're going through it time after time after time and having to make the call. Uh, I just spoke with a colleague on an interview yesterday and she said she was getting calls from all over from her colleagues that were telling her, and these are social workers, uh, how difficult it was to be the one that was there with with the person that took their last breath and then having to call the family member and tell them and then help them plan on, you know, whatever plans they can make. And like you said, with the social distancing, you know, there's not the same normal sense of, you know, having a farewell, you know, funeral service Mm -hmm. or home going service. And people don't realize that it's the social worker that's really being asked to take a look at that, handle that, advise the family, comfort the family and also be there with that uh, person that's in the hospital who may be approaching taking their last breath. So, you know, we really want to make sure that everyone realizes that as when you say frontline workers, essential workers are on the front lines, that certainly social workers are and should be included 
in that discussion and in that conversation. So thank you for bringing those points to the forefront. So as we get ready to wrap up, what is it that you would like the general public to know about the role that social workers have always played and how that role has been magnified as the uh, pandemic has taken hold? Okay. One thing I wanted to share was a situation that happened when I was a medical social worker at the trauma center. And another thing I wanted to say just in general about how invisible social workers are until you realize, oh my gosh, you've been here the whole time. So I would go around to medical staff and there was one young lady that was on our medical ICU. So this young lady was a diabetic and she hadn't been taking medication like she was supposed to. And that's a whole other issue. But it ended up being where her dad came to see her dad was there every day, every day, every day. When she lived with her father, he made sure that she took her medicine, but she had become of age and had moved out and wasn't really, wasn't, hadn't been taking it like she was supposed to. I say all that to say this. Part of what I did was making sure that anything that I could assist with or that fell closer into my role, I made sure that I, I, I could do anything that was possible to make it easier for the nurses and the doctors. So at that point, I printed off the statute in Florida, which was, you know, regarding next of kin, who gets to make those those decisions if the person is unable to do so, either they're um, unconscious or whatever the case may be. I printed that that statute out, I highlighted it, and I put, we had these phones we carried called the zone phone. I put my number on there. I said, like, listen, just explain it briefly. If, it, if, it, if the family's not, you know, receiving that, then I'll take care of it. You just handle the medical piece. The director of the ICU, when we got to this young lady, she said, well, why don't we call the aunt? Because she doesn't have a really good relationship with her father. I have to call her father because, I, he, you know, he's the next of kin. So that educational piece, it wasn't just educating family members and providing information as it relates to resources and whether it's services to, to come and, and here's something to eat or drink, you know, that whole connection and making sure that the total person was taken care of, both the patient and the family, was also educating the family and oftentimes the medical staff and that was that was interesting too the other thing I wanted to say was it it becomes frustrating like I said I've been a a social worker for 28 years we're not considered in the in the grand scheme of things first responders even though I my primary focus is my students and their families providing the same resources to the staff because the staff know this is a safe place like the staff know I'm going through changes I'm going to talk to the school social worker and it happens all the time yes you know it happens wherever I am but I mean you know people don't think about that like I said we're invisible until you need us but to answer your question about in general I feel like it's like we we have a job description or we have a role to play but that role is fluid and aside from like the the hardened specifics of each role, like medical social work or school social work, you know, there's a variance there. Aside from that, the rest of it is like the glue because we just tend to, we're problem solved, yes. you know, and when we see it, we fix it. And our minds are just working like that. We're like coming behind and doing, you know, this, that, and the other. And because it's not scripted in the job description or because, you know, the light isn't on us and we're not holding down a sign saying, hey, we're over here. We don't have the movies and the TV shows, you know, that highlight what we do, right? We don't have those pieces. And if, if there is a show or something where social work is mentioned, nine times out of 10, it's something derogatory. Either social workers doing some unethical mm-hmm. or somebody's parent, somebody's child got taken it's, it's not the other piece like we're talking about right now and so in the broad general theme of things the beauty of social work is that you can have a social worker in any aspect it's, it's that eclectic piece that brings the person together yes. it's the glue that helps fill in the gaps where the, the pieces are missing or broken or fragmented and that's what we do yes. whether it's in the hospital whether it's in the school whether it's in the community 
that's just what we do. And Absolutely. it changes. And it, yeah, it changes and varies based upon that specific environment. But what we do is the exact same place to place, if that makes any sense. It makes all the sense in the world. So excellently put, we are like the chameleon. We can adapt to, and we do adapt to every and any situation. And on many occasions, I've talked about how social workers, any aspect of society that you could think of, there's a role that a social worker can and does and has played. So I think that the way that you put that was brilliant because that is really the message that we continually try to present to whoever will listen is that you name an aspect of society, I'll show you a role that a social worker can play. And so we need to continue to promote that um, all across the country, all across the globe. And I thank you for highlighting that in such an excellent way. So with that said, thank you for coming on and taking time out of your busy schedule for presenting some very interesting and enlightening information. And I'm looking forward to hearing other stories that you would like to share and feel free to reach us here at the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast anytime. We'd gladly have you back as a guest. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate and host of the show. You've been listening to the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast. This and all other programs are available on the Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Anchor podcast platforms. Go to any search engine and type in Kelson on the Air in the search window to hear this show in its entirety. Thank you for tuning in. This has been a Kelson Communications production.